Um, so I'm going to have Alicia come and read the text. Um, it's, it's found in John 17. This is what uh, is known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for his disciples and the disciples of his disciples, i.e. you and I. All right, John 17, 1 through 3. So if you could turn there with me. That's fine. All right. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. And as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. So we're going to be looking at this text, the words of Jesus to his disciples, um, and kind of pressing in to see what it is that God is trying to develop in us as disciples as a whole. Um, I want you guys to know that the heart behind my work in this season of ministry is primarily to minimize autopiloting Christianity, to minimize walking through motions and proliferating things that don't move our souls there's already enough in life that we can have um, just, uh, you know, cruise control, autopilot, all of it. It's, it's all around us. Technology has created space where we can turn off our brains. I mean, I don't even think about where I'm driving anymore. I just put it into my maps and I just do it, do it, do it, right? And so we need to relearn how to be human. We need to relearn how to be human. So, um, so minimizing those autopilot Christianity mechanisms. And secondly, I want to encourage you and I and us to live lives of joy, lives of resilience and meaning, i.e. abundant life. And third, I want to see the beauty of Jesus manifest in our church for his glory and the good of the world. And this isn't a straightforward thing. What we need in this season is something that uh, Jesus is leading us into. And what he's led us into is not something uh, crazy or outlandish or larger than life. He's led us into the return of simplicity. Mark 12, 29 says it so well in the very word of Jesus says this. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You're, you're a whole being and God is beckoning you to engage with Him in the different facets of your person. But the question that I had for us as we get into this is, what if our hearts aren't soft? What if your heart towards God today isn't one that is melty towards Him? It's one that's confused. What if your heart isn't one that's, that's growing and vibrant, it's actually rocky and hard? What if your heart is more apathetic and dry? 
What do we do when we say, when Jesus says, the most important thing, if you're going to focus on one thing, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, are we stuck? Well, we can get stuck here. We can get stuck. But what I want us to wrestle with, because it's all too often that we and I can find ourselves in the same words that Jesus uses when he describes a people. In Mark 7, 6, he describes a people as those who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What if that's true about us? What if that's true about us and we don't want it to be? How? How, if our hearts are far from God and, and we're still like, we still are trying to do the right stuff and hoping that our hearts will follow, what can we actually do? Today we're going to be talking about the heart. The heart is, is, is yes, it's the seat of our emotions. It's where you feel lots of things, but it's more than that. The, the heart is, is a place where, where the physical, the moral, the spiritual, and the intellectual being converges. It's actually the centerpiece of all the conundrums of your personality. It's your gut. It's what you feel when you have a visceral reaction. It's you in your mixed, unfiltered, imperfect, and unrefined thoughts. That's your heart. That's your heart. It's the place where when you have too much information from too many different places, but you still have these kind of gut um, uh, motivations or hunches, it's that confusing, complicated space in your life and in your body, the very center of all your bits that come together. This is your heart. What's even more interesting is that when Jesus says you're to love God with all your mind, your heart, soul, strength, uh, he says this, not so much love God with your heart, with all your heart. We look at that as a quantity Okay, I do love God, but is it with all my heart? Well, how do I engage more of my heart? Well, really a better translation of the original is to say, actually, not just with the heart, but we're to love God from the heart. It's a space. It's a, it's a component of who you are that you're intended to switch on the lights to who God is. And so as we think about the heart, what it is, and how can we really engage our heart towards God, it becomes the task of looking at the complicated, sometimes contradictory thoughts and feelings and emotions and still going in the midst of all the confusion. I can't piece it all together, but something about you, God, is drawing me toward you. This is the love of God through our hearts. It's to come to God with the core of who we are in the face of all the different ways of processing life and spirituality. We can get stuck. I listed a few of the common experiences that I've felt at different moments that have caused me to step back from the table of God and to stop pursuing Him, to stop trying to understand Him, to stop looking for Him. There have been seasons where I've said, I don't understand what's going on. And so I'm going to back up. 
There have been seasons where I say that I don't know how, I don't know what to do with the disappointment that I'm experiencing, God, so I'm going to back up. Or I've had seasons where I say, God, I just feel lost, or I'm just in a fog, and I can't sort through all of my thoughts and emotions and feelings, but God says even in that space where not all of our uh, understanding, emotions, our holistic being agrees, we can still love God in that space where we just say, here's the mess of me, and even though I don't have it all worked out, I am drawn towards you. But what it takes is not just merely us gathering ourselves and blindly throwing ourselves towards a God out there, we actually have been gifted with a a, a capability that God has designed in our bodies, the ability to not just understand and study God, but to see God at work. He's given us eyes to perceive. So we have to recognize there are different seasons where we can feel we're stuck or our hearts are hard or distant from God. And we can, we can recognize that God's grace is sufficient. We're not going to be cast out of his presence because we don't consistently run towards him and always walk lockstep with him. We are secure because of Jesus. Yet we must receive this warning. There is a caution that hardness of heart or apathy towards God is actually tied in Scripture to the inability to see with our eyes and to hear with our ears. Mark chapter 8, which we're going to be digging into this evening, describes Jesus interacting with his disciples. He's just fed, I believe, the 5,000, and he's in a boat with his disciples, and his disciples are arguing about bread, and Jesus is getting frustrated with them. And he's like, why are you talking about bread? I'm not talking about bread. Did you not just see that we fed 5,000 people with two loaves? He says this in verse 16. Um, Yeah, sorry, 17. Why are you discussing the fact that we have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have your eyes not seen? Sorry, have you eyes that do not see and have you ears that do not hear? Do you not remember? What do we do when we feel dead inside? It's important. It's important. There's a good news, though. Even believers and non-believers can feel this deadness inside where there's such an elusiveness to God that we don't know where He's at or what He's doing. We just wish He would stand in front of us. But the really good news is that even when we feel dead inside or even, in fact, are dead inside, We believe that Jesus, as in John 10.10, he says, I came to give life. So even in the midst of our deadness towards God, where you feel nothing, Jesus is like, I came to give life to that messy bit of you that it's all confusing. I came to grab hold of your heart and shock it back to life so that you can have a genuine interaction with me. John 17, 3, it says this, Father, the hour has now come, and this is our reading, glorify your Son, that is, show your Son for who He is, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to do what? To give eternal life 
to all whom you have given to him. Jesus has been given authority. He didn't just come to give life. God has actually given him the mantle and right and power to actually give life to whomever the Father has given to him. And so Jesus has come to this earth with a very uh, specific mission to give life. And then Jesus describes what this life really is in verse 3. And this is eternal life, the eternal life that I came to give, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus, in his mission to this earth, came to help us to understand who God is. It's really difficult for us in, in our um, kind of back hills or, 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 or back country theology, when we hear the idea of eternal life, we're like, oh, that's living forever. No, in this Jewish perspective of eternal life, it is a quality of life. This is what Jesus actually says. He's not like, you're going to never end. Although that is true, even more so, what eternal life is, is that you would have a knowledge of God so that his very character and person would impact the way that you walk, the next tragedy you have, and the next victory you walk through. His character impacting every moment, every nuance of life, a different character of God shining into that space and illuminating life. I've been thinking a lot about my wife. Uh, We're celebrating 20 years uh, this year. And uh, the more I get to know Rachel, the less I care about what happens in life. Because I know she's going to be with me. And different highs and lows bring out different components of who she is. And I continually celebrate because I learn more and more about the intricate beauty of her person. This is what it is to love God. It's not to have this just eternal life someday. No, God comes to us today and he says, I am my person towards you. And as you walk through life, look towards me. Look towards me for me to show up as I truly am and allowing my nature to actually imprint your experience. It brings a richness even to the worst moments. It brings a beauty to the darkness. God's presence with us is the very true life eternal. You see, there is life in simply just knowing Jesus because He changes every moment. The series we're working into is four weeks called The Liturgy of Life or The Rhythms of Life. Practicing things that are going to cultivate in you muscle memory so that as you do them and as we do them together, it's going to become a part of your habit. Like brushing your teeth in the morning. When you don't do it, it's going to feel awkward. Seeing God with our eyes is is going to become normative where we go, God, I forgot to stop and look around to see where you're at work in my life over my lunch break. It it just doesn't feel right. God, I find myself in this tragedy, and I'm all buried in the details and frustration. And then you're going to realize, oh my gosh, I forgot to stop and go, God, where are you at work here? Show me what you're doing. We need to develop these patterns that are going to actually open our hearts Because if we blind our eyes, it's actually removing yet one thing that God has gifted to us to actually engage with his heart. 
So, our prayer, every service as we come together, you're going to notice we open our services in prayer. The, the, the rhythm that we're trying to create in that is the rhythm of God. Open our eyes to see where you're at work. Help us to have you in the center of our mind's eye as we worship. We turn our eyes towards you. This is a regular posture of every service. God, open our eyes. And just as surely as we'll learn next week, God, open our ears. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your words to be transformed by them. This is quite interesting. When you think about Moses, we've been spending a lot of time studying Moses over the last few weeks and how God declared who he was to Moses, right? Well, if you think about it, Moses' first interaction with God was a burning bush. He's walking, he's minding his own business, and then God, boom! He sees there's something going on, and why does he go? He goes to inspect what it is that's happening, and then from there, Moses begins this beautiful relationship of recognizing what he didn't know before, that there is a God outside of his consciousness that he had no idea was there before he met God at the burning bush. Friends, we know many people who struggle to perceive a God outside of their world perspective. They struggle. My my question for us is, where do we see God and where should they see God? Because God is still at work. He's still revealing himself. He is still showing himself and saying, perceive with your eyes that you may be saved. The first posture of our liturgy is seeing God. Seeing God is identified as identifying that there is a personality that is knowable outside of us. There is a personality outside of us. And this person is worthy of our attention. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, we as a community of people believe that God is at work in the world and He, yes, sent Jesus. And we'll see where Jesus' role was. Now, this is what Moses experienced. He, he, he was decentered, And that's a work that has to take place. If you're going to see God, you can no longer function uh, only as the center of your world. But for you to be affronted by the very presence of God, it will decenter you. And you'll go, oh, there's something out there besides me. Moses was decentered. Exodus 33:18, "Please show me your glory, God." And God showed up and declared himself as generous in relationship, compassionate, gracious, patient, long, love, loyal and loving, and trustworthy and forgiving. These are the components of who God is that we've been spending so much time thinking about. Moses declares for more. We need to see God in the story. Notice this. Moses saw the glory of God and then he wrote the story of God, the history books, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all Moses writing about God's nature towards the people of Israel. If you want to know who God is, 
Look at the Old Testament because he showed up in his personality. You'll see his generosity. You'll see his compassion. You'll see his graciousness, his patience, his loyal, loving care, and his trustworthiness and forgiving nature. You'll see it in Scripture. And so we're called to open our eyes and read Scripture and say, God, show me your glory. When you open Scripture, don't look for rules. Look for the glory of God. Look for the thing. Say, God, show me your glory. Open scripture and don't close it until God shows you his glory. It'll set your life on fire. We want to see God in the story. And so we must begin to pray, God, show us your glory. Eternal life is living in the intimate knowledge of God. Eternal life is living in the intimate knowledge of God. Show me who you are. Yet we recognize that there are, we, we need to have eyes that see. It's possible for us to actually see God at work around us and not see. This is what Jesus is actually talking about when he referenced it with his disciples uh, in Mark 8. And that's not on the screen. Mark 8 says this, uh, having eyes, do you not see? You can stare at something and not receive it. I've driven to work and had no clue where I've gone, Right? It's possible. You can be in and around the work of God. He could be transforming the life of the person next to you, and you're like, I didn't feel a thing. Is that crazy? There's a point in time when Jesus stopped giving miraculous signs because the the Pharisees and the people who didn't want to believe, they're like, show me another one. Show me another one. He's like, no, you don't get any more. You don't have eyes to see. And remember, no eyes to see, no ears to hear. It doesn't affect the heart. All it does is go in and out. That is a cautious and precarious place to be. To live in a state of apathy is tied to hard-heartedness. Believer, you can harden your heart to the Holy Spirit. If you quench the Spirit, ignore the Spirit. When He prompts you, you continue to push it down. Your heart can become hardened to God. And here's the tragedy, non-believer. God may be prompting you, prodding you, pursuing you, and you push him down, you push him down, you push him down. God will not continue that forever. There will be a day when he says, you don't have ears to ear, nor eyes to see. You you don't want me. And one day it'll just stop. And you'll be what we studied as God's patience, his long-suffering, he goes, here you go. So we have to take care to know what's going on. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, about people who want to, or people who don't see and don't understand, not everybody's going to see and we can't force them to. I like how Paul is honest about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Yes, we want you to believe. I want you to see. Everybody in this room, they want you to know who Jesus is. We want you to see God at work here. Yes, but we have refused disgraceful ways, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice trickery. We refuse to tamper with God's word and make it more palatable to you. We refuse that. 
And that means that some people are not going to see Jesus because they don't want to see the real Jesus. We cannot force others to see. I cannot force you to see, nor am I willing to manipulate you to see it. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, that is covered, you don't see it. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And here's a sad verse. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We have a very real enemy that does not want you to see. Like like the parable of the the seeds being planted, he's like a, a crow that sweeps down to grab the seeds of the gospel before they even strike the heart of the, of the individuals and even sometimes us. Satan does not want us to encounter truth. But praise be to God, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. I don't want you to see me. I want you to see Jesus. Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves, we are merely your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who it was God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. And it has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We must see God, not only in Scripture, but see God in Jesus. He came to reveal the very nature of the Godhead to us in the flesh. He kindly condescended to take on our skin and bones to show us what God is like in the flesh. And thanks be to God, He helps the blind to see. It's one of the reasons why He healed the man uh, in Bethsaida in Mark 8, 22. Jesus, He did healings for reasons. I hope you know that. It wasn't just like, boom, boom. Oh, this will be cool. Boom. He did, he did miracles, and you'll notice where Mark puts this. It's right next to the disciples, like, not seeing. It's like, hey, have you, are, you, are you not getting it still? Are you blind? You're seeing, but you're not seeing? He goes in and makes this miracle. Check it out. Verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, he led him outside of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, weird, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked it up and said, I see people. Whoa. Couldn't see? Could see. Not 20-20 vision. So then Jesus... He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened the man's eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. You see, the story of Jesus with the disciples and with you and I is actually the slow process of him healing our sight and healing our sight and healing our sight, making it clearer and clearer and clearer about who he is and his glory and his nature and his beauty so that as we pursue and get to know who Jesus is, 
our love for him becomes more defined and refined and nuanced. We begin to explore who he is in different contexts, not just mentally, but experientially. We see God at work among us. Notice this. There's a reason that there was two healings. One, I can kind of see, but then a clarity because sometimes even believers, we need to have our eyes rubbed clean and clarified to perceive what God is doing. Even after seeing Jesus and saying, okay, I see him. Yes, I believe him. He died and rose again for me. Even after there are things for us to be perceiving in the spirit of our mind's eye. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, 1 1.16. He says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that is the church in Ephesus, that the God, this is what I pray for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen to this, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he calls you. I'm not going to dive into the rest of that verse, no matter how much I want to. But know this, we are given the spirit of wisdom, capital S. It is not a, a spirit of wisdom. It is the spirit of Jesus, the wisdom of God given to us. John 16, 13 says this, and when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Spirit of God, when we see Jesus and receive Him into our life, He inhabits us and He teaches us and He clarifies things for us and He reveals to us who God is in nuance and glory and beauty. You see, we are not alone in this endeavor to try and see God. God is in the midst of us here and in us spiritually, opening us up, awakening us bringing us to life. So what do we do? A lot of information, thank you. What do we do when our heart is stuck? When our heart is stuck, I believe we need to primarily focus on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom instead of all the things around you. And when I say that, I believe what I mean to say is we need to make war on apathy. Eternal life is found in truly and deeply loving God with all of you. So first step I would say in seeking the kingdom, we need to purge ourselves of the drivel. We need to purge ourselves of the the gluttony of indulgence and consumption. We have to stop consuming all of the goods of the world, whether it's media or video clip after video clip. We need to identify what it is that actually robs you of vitality towards God. What is it that you do and you get done with it and you're like, man, I feel further away from God than I did when I started. 
You know there's an art form in actually taking Sabbath and resting well so that you don't drift away from God as you're taking time off than when you started? But there is a way to actually be with Jesus, to, to be re- revitalized in his presence without drifting off. But we need to recognize, what is it for you that actually makes your heart just like dead towards God? Confession time. Uh, you, you know those little short videos? They used to be on TikTok and I could judge everybody for watching TikTok. Well, now they're on Instagram and they're hilarious, some of them. But I find that it's a never-ending quest to be intrigued, to see something interesting, to see another person fall off a ladder, right? To see another soccer goal. That's what my feed looks like. Like, and I, and I get done. I, 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 at some point, I'm like, I got to put my phone down. Well, why am I even looking? There's a hunger in me. I'm looking for something. I'm looking to be excited. I'm looking to be fascinated by something. But it leaves me so numb towards God. What is it for you that leaves you numb towards God? Because Satan loves it. He loves it. Number two, we got to start the habit of looking to and for God. We need to start the habit of looking to God and for God. And this only takes place when we create space. God is not on tap. Right now, God, I'm going to give you 20 seconds before I flip. If we're expecting God to function at the same speed as TikTok, my friends, or or the TV remote, or whatever it is, or the next news story that you can flip through, like, if we're expecting God... To move at that, God does not move at that pace. God moves at his own pace. And he often is slow. He often is one who shows up, not in the bustle and the noise and out screams all of the other things that my heart longed for in the flesh. He is a God who whispers in the places and the unrushed cordoned areas. We have to learn how to create spaces to linger. Spaces that are blocked of uh, distractions. We have to grow our willingness to show up and simply invite the Spirit with expectancy to awaken our senses. Creating space to linger to sit, to invite, and say, God, show me your glory. Please stir within me. And finally, we need to start praying that prayer. Jesus, open my eyes. Show me your glory. We need to start that habit every morning. So there are three things that I think we can look at. We need to see him in the story of Scripture and in the story of others. We need to see him in Jesus, spending time in the Gospels. We need to see him in community. 
which is the body of Christ. That's the, the final place that we should be able to see God at work. Is in the church. The world should be able to see Jesus at work within us. Should be able to see a peculiar nature that makes them stumped. That based upon the societal norms, you're just a weirdo, but it's a good kind of weird. You're kind. You shouldn't be. You're patient. Why? God revealed to us who He is. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ, intended to be representatives of who He is on earth, embodying His nature. Yes, embodying the nature that we studied, embodying His generosity, His compassion, His graciousness, His patience, His loyal, loving nature, His trustworthiness, and His forgiving nature. And I have to tell you, throughout my week as I've been thinking about this, and particularly today, when I think about these words, I've seen God in you as the church. I've seen the generous nature of God in relationships through those who have come alongside of us and provided for us. I've seen the compassion of God in in a dear friend, Alicia, when we were going through a hard time and she just opened her home for us to just be. That is the compassion of God on display. I've seen, I've seen God's patience in, in our uh, lovely friend, Greg, who, who loves having structure and things, and he's got to deal with me, who's an artist. I've seen the patience of God at work in him. I've seen the loyal, loving kindness in my daughter as she walked alongside of me as my friend. I've seen this trustworthy nature in Caitlin as she helps to lead the church. I've seen this forgiving nature in my son Elijah as he's rebuilding our relationship together. You see, God wants to be on display, and he is so much as we invite him to be doing that. There's a quote, and I don't know who said it, but it's, you can't see the wind, but we can often see the effects of the wind. You've heard this? It's kind of interesting that the word for spirit is ruach, wind. And we're told in Galatians 5, that the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Man, I've seen love, the love of the Spirit in Rachel as she moves around this room, bringing out the best in all of you. I've seen joy in our Barbara who just gave birth to Jacqueline. I've seen joy, sorry, I've seen peace in Jessica right there. Just chill. I know it's the heavy vibes, but it's you. And you're rubbing off on John a little bit. (laughs) Teresa, you have the peace as well. It's powerful. I've seen patience in you, Jason Seymour. You've always been a man of patience. Answering my dumb questions about worship and speakers and all the stuff that you know that I don't. I've seen the kindness in Sarah, your Jonathan. I've seen goodness in Sarah Buckley. I've seen faithfulness in Mark and Kathy LaValle. I've seen gentleness in Jake Goliford. I've seen self-control in, in Neil and Bethany as they serve around the church. See, I've seen God at work in all of us. And I could go, but I could go more, but you don't want me to. It's been 37 minutes, so I'm going to close. But my desire for us 
is that we would learn to cultivate rhythms and reflexes that in turn cultivate spaces where your true humanity can emerge and be quickened and moved with the waves of God's very person and blossom in genuine love in your lives. That is my desire. So let us not be as the people of the Old Testament who saw God move greatly, yet they did not see the heart. Let us be a people who see God in the face of Jesus Christ and the beauty of His church and the story of Scripture so that we can bring the messiness of our uncertainty, confusion, and contradictory thoughts and bring the heart of us to the heart of God. I'm going to close by just leading a prayer over us. I'll ask you to close your eyes and, and bow your heads. Spirit, we know that you're in the room and even though it's hot, I just pray that you would, you'd meet us. We want to see you. And so Lord, I pray that as we just dip our heads down and we think about who you are, that you would show us your glory. I'm going to invite you to ask God to give you a vision that is a picture in your mind as I say these different words. When I say that God is generous in loving relationship, God, show us the moments that you've been generous with us. God, you tell us that you're compassionate, that your soul aches for us as your children. Lord, I pray that you would touch memories right now. Memories that felt like you were devoid of them. Will you open our eyes to see where you were? God, you tell us that you're gracious. Show us where your grace is. Lord, it says that you are slow to anger and patient. Can you show us the moments that you were patient with us? God, when you were loyal, when you held up your promise to us, remind us, Lord God, show us. Show us your glory. Where were you? Where are you now? God, you tell us that you're trustworthy. Will you open our eyes to see that? You tell us that you're forgiving. God, will you sear the image of your strewn body on the cross, bleeding? 
for us. God, we see you. We see you. We see you even in the midst of unknowing and confusion. We believe that you're there. Even amidst our confusion, our hurt and distrust, God, in the midst of us, in the midst of our mess, we are drawn to you. We are drawn to you. So God, we invite more of your visions, more of what you have for us. We love you and we thank you. And we ask you to bless our time of worship and communion as we remember your body and blood. In Jesus' name, amen.